you're tuned in with In the Blind Combat Waterfowl, the podcast. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to In the Blind with Combat Waterfowl. I'm your host, Andrew Beck, along with our other two hosts, Robert Brewer and uh, Dylan Fuck 12 West. What's going on, boys? <laughs> what, up? what up? What up? He didn't think I'd do that shit, did he? No, I didn't. Uh, for those who don't know, Dylan is in law enforcement if you missed the last episode, so it's kind of an inside joke. Uh, we, we don't really feel that way most of the time. Mighty sweet coming from a second responder. <laughs> oh boy, we're on one tonight already, boys. Uh, <laughs> well, I hope you guys have had a uh, a lovely combat waterfowl week. Getting back into it, season two, episode two. We are jumping on talking about sub gauge shotguns and yeah. the revolutionary approach they have given the market. And the sport, really. Um, kind of hyped up about it this week. I think that uh, more and more, a lot of people are getting into it and they're seeing the benefits um, and they're starting to weigh the cost and and seeing uh, if it's the right plan for them. I know I'm one of those people and uh, I'm looking forward to this topic this week. Yeah, so uh, I, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one of the three of us that has been shooting anything besides the 12-gauge Um consistently for the last several years and uh honestly i i started shooting an m2 and um you know i'm a huge fan uh i was kind of always a 12 gauge or die kind of guy and uh i don't know man I, I picked that m2 up and i shot the lights out with it first time i picked it up and so i i went on and, and bought some boss shells and in, in 20 gauge and uh i've not set that gun down since in fact, I uh, in fact I ordered a 28 gauge um, that one of our guys ordered for me. It still hasn't come in yet, but I'm excited to uh, to go down to that and uh, and do that as well. Yeah, yeah definitely. Good. Go ahead, Dylan. So I've mostly shot 12. Um, I've dabbled in the 20 a little bit here and there, um, especially with the the doves and stuff like that. But it's definitely something uh, something I think I could could get into. Yeah, I mean, I my first go around was it was when my shit was messing up, and uh, all brew daddy was like, "Hey man, just just shoot this for a second. Yeah, I'm kind of hooked now. Um, <laughs> so I mean, I uh, actually about two weeks ago I went over to uh, to the uh, gun store and was popping around over there. I'm I'm crossed between a Franke and a M2, but. I'm not quite sure yet. Um, but I mean, I think that my uh, my own personal opinion on it is that um, what's lighter, maybe more, um, a little bit more effective with the way that, you know, loads are today. Um, I think it just it, overall, it's going to make it a lot of people more effective in general. I don't think a lot of people necessarily realize yet how effective they can be with it. So I would say, uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with you as, as far as like user friendliness in relation to like effectiveness. Um, the, the most surprising thing to me, um, at least with the research that, that I did about it, you know, when I, I've shot boss for, I don't know, four or five seasons now, I guess. But I think this is going on my fifth season with it. Um, and 
I always shot two and three quarter inch number fours or two and three quarter inch number fives when I shot 12 gauge boss and the pellet count from a two and three quarter, you know, number five, 12 gauge versus a three inch 20 gauge, which is what they come, they come in three inch 20 gauge number five is, is you're looking at the same, you're looking at the same amount of pellets pretty much like right, almost dead on the same pellet count. The thing for me is it swings better. It's lighter. Um, your recoil is less. So your time on target is greater. Um, acquisition of new targets is is easier in my opinion. Um, and it's just, to me, is more fun to shoot. Uh, I don't really feel like I've been in a situation. I mean, we've ran it through sea ducks, geese, everything else. And I, I haven't, I haven't met a, a limit of, uh, of, of no return with, with the 20 gauge that, that I haven't done anything with that 20 gauge that I couldn't do, um, or that I could do with the 12, you know, that 20 gauge just does it just as good. And I, I feel like I have a better experience, um, with it. Just, just my, my take. Definitely much more enjoyable than blasting on a 12 gauge all day. Yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah, I would say for sure. I, I enjoyed hunting with the 20 more um just in the sporting aspect of it i thought that uh i thought that i wasn't as fatigued nor was i um it's not as cumbersome either like it it, it seems kind of crazy to me but i felt like the size difference in it played a little bit of a part in it as well yeah yeah i agree i mean so like when you look at other other sub gauges, a 16 gauge is, is, is one that we could talk about for just a minute. You know, 16 gauge has been around for a hot minute. Um, and I think that people really started picking up 16 gauge and more, um, due to decreased availability of 12 gauge ammunition. I mean, it, there's for the last little bit, I mean, you couldn't even find 12 gauge shells and, you know, you could generally find some sort of something, maybe a box or two here or there, of 16 gauge and you know there's all there was almost always 20 on the shelf um so i think that you know maybe the availability of it is kind of driving folks to uh, possibly make a switch to um or just something different you know um it's definitely i think i don't really see it with the 20 gauge but i definitely see it like going down to a 28 gauge or even further down to like a 410 um the challenge aspect of it being a little bit adding just another element to your hunt. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, can't speak on the 16 or the 28 much. I shot a 28 gauge in South Carolina on a quail hunt. And once I, once I got used to, to the difference, I, I really did enjoy shooting that. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I think also though, like uh, I'm going to kind of jump ahead though. Like I guess a disclaimer in this, like, don't outshoot your marksmanship ability on this. Um, it, it does vary and it does change, you know, as far as a, you know, ethical standpoint, whether or not your shooting abilities are capable um, or you have an understanding of pellet count versus, you know, gauge and all that, which I'm not the world's greatest in it. Um, but I'm, I'm slowly trying to take on this adventure. It's, it's more than meets the eye, um, basically, is what I'm saying in this disclaimer. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think, you know, I'm comparing I'm comparing two and three quarter boss to three inch um, to three inch 
20 gates from 12 to 20. So for me, there's, there's really no pellet difference, but the overwhelming majority of, of waterfowl hunters are shooting three inch, um, three inch, 12 gauge. And, you know, there's not a lot of people that, that shoot two and three quarter inch, uh, that, that are shooting, you know, standard steel ammunition. Most of them are shooting three inch, um, for, for the most part. So there's definitely, there's definitely a pellet count difference. There's a, there's a charge difference between those two shells. Um, you know, so you have to think about, like Andy said, kind of whether, whether that's something that that's going to make the most sense for you. You know, if, if, if you're one of those dudes that, you know, has trouble hitting the broad side of a barn, it might not be the, the best idea to, to kind of cut down your pellet count. But I certainly would say that I also feel that there are a lot of people out there who don't have a shotgun that is fitted to them, uh, the way it should be. And I think that people, you know, they, they jump to a particular gun for, for whatever reason, without making sure that it's shimmed appropriately, without making sure that it even fits them. Um, and, and that's to me a, a huge factor as well. If, if you're, if you're not shouldering the gun appropriately and you're not looking down and getting the proper sight picture, then none of this that we're talking about matters. So I definitely say that that's that, that should be first and foremost. Sometimes they just don't fit a gun particular model won't fit Andy the same way it'll fit me or same way it'll fit, fit Dylan. Yeah. The, uh, it's definitely important for the fit. It's, you know, from the guide aspect I've put together more, more than I can count on a hand, like guns straight out of a box, brand new, never shot it, never, you know, put it up to their shoulder and, uh, get out in the blind and, you know, wonder why they're missing or they're behind or whatever. And, I, I, I'm huge on, on making sure the gun fits, but. Yeah. I, and I think that, I mean, that's a, a whole different topic. We could kind of just tangent into that. Like I have no desire to shoot any other shell than like boss now, just because of how effective it is. Um, not only that it's a, it, like, there's a, a cost difference of course, but it comes from like a, a prepared type thing like i know i buy you know a case or two at the beginning of the season and i'm done you know what i mean maybe maybe at the end of the season i might have to you know scramble on whatever they have extra laying over to make something work but um it's just kind of what works for me but getting to it as far as like getting your money's worth for your shell you know what i mean um i used to hang around a lot of you know, I, I used to be a firm believer in, in kit and I still think it's a great shell. I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but when we're talking, you know, effectiveness, it, it's just, I can't, which is kind of going along a, on an ethical standpoint. It just, it makes more sense to me. And I, I, I have yet to kind of, when you converse with people, um, you know, in the blind with, you know, whoever or anybody like that, I still can't understand why some people haven't decided on that change but solely on a cost reason. That's the number one reason I think that a lot of people don't switch over to it. And frankly, it's not like a, I don't know how to say this. It's not like a, like an elitist thing. I think that's a great way to describe it. Um, what I noticed is that I actually spent less money and we may have brought that topic up on uh, the show prior to now at some point or another, but every year I used to go through two to three cases of steel shot. And a lot of the times when I would hunt, I would be hunting divers and seat ups, like we discussed prior. And what you find out is how tough those birds really are and how resilient they can be 
when those pellets start flying. And what I noticed when I started shooting boss was that, um, and it's, it doesn't have to be boss, right? There are several other companies out there that produce bismuth, uh, that produce tungsten. Those, those uh, materials are much more malleable, much more hard hitting than steel. And it's, it's not a, it's not a brand thing. It's not like, Oh, well, you know, can't fast steel or nothing. Steel is steel. Bismuth is bismuth. Tungsten is tungsten to a point, to a point when you're just talking about the effectiveness of the material. Um, you know, when you, when I shot, when I started shooting boss, I shot less because I had number one, I had less crisp, less cripples. Um, the, the pattern from that ammunition, the speed is almost identical to target loads, which is what we use in the off season. So the transition from off season to in season is really seamless because you're shooting a similar material at a similar speed. And oftentimes steel is faster than lead. So there's an adjustment period that you have when you go over to grab steel ammo. Also, um, like we've said, the, the material itself and its effectiveness as a uh, killing, um, as a killing material is not, not there when you compare that to bismuth or tungsten. Yeah, I, uh, I'm one of them that hasn't made that switch yet. Um, you know, not, not, not a money issue, not a anything, but, uh, it's more or less I've shot Kent. <laughs> and, uh, that's just kind of what I'm stuck with. Excuse me. I'm not so like, so, yeah, I mean, like, I, I guess, you know, with, I guess I didn't realize, I didn't realize that to be honest with you. Um, but with you, I don't want to call it the opposition because going back to it, I don't think it's like, a, 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 I really don't think it's a, an elitist thing. Um, like what would be the determining factor in making you make that change? Honestly, I don't think there's, it, it's more of a, if it's not broke, don't fix it in my mind. Like I haven't shot much boss, um, shot it a few times and, and it did, you know, I, I did enjoy it, but I've never had an issue with Kent. Um, like I said, to me, it's more or less just a, I just haven't made the switch. In his position, though, I don't know that I necessarily would, depending on the scenario. If I'm guiding somebody, I'm not taking boss with me. Yeah, true. Because you're going yeah. to be finishing clients' birds. You want the cheapest shell you can get. Um, that's just my opinion. I would not be shooting boss at crippled birds that clients knock down. It just that would not be me. So, I, I mean, I can understand that as well. But for me, uh, like if I'm going to go, like when I went king eider hunting, um, I took the absolute best shells that I could take because I wanted to make sure you, you, you have a limited window and a limited opportunity. And I, I didn't want, I didn't want steel bouncing off a bird at, you know, 40 yards, knowing that I might have to take that shot. <coughs> yeah, I completely understand. I, I will agree with you as well, though. I don't, I don't feel like I missed those 50 shots in a case. Um, only because I'm not dodging out cripples and stuff like that. I, I and I will say this on a, a cost standpoint, I felt like it's made me more effective because I I'm a little bit more selective in which shots I am taking versus which shots I'm not taking now. Um, and that's made it more enjoyable for me as well. Pull up and pull the trigger three times. 
Yeah. Spray and pray. <laughs> yeah. Only because of, you know, I bought four boxes with me instead of, you know, a bag full of yeah. maybe 20. So. Yeah. We can talk about the little show bag they give you when you buy a case too. That thing is a one from day one. Dude, I saw where uh, somebody was making um, like leather ones. I have to hop on <laughs> that trend, bro. Like, You're digging be... this leather like full speed lately. Dude, I, I'm gonna be bougie, man. Like, I mean, I, I have an affinity for leather as it is, you know, leather belts and stuff like that, but. So I got a leather lanyard. Now you got to get a leather lanyard. Is that that's what we're that's what we're doing now? <laughs> no, hold tight. Now you you went and got the ostrich, bro. <laughs> it, it is leather, but yeah, it is ostrich, man. Awesome company that made that uh, feather and fin leather goods, man. That that dude told me I can't even. It was some ungodly amount of hours that that dude had in that lanyard, and I, I it was. I don't want to, if he's listening to it, I don't want to uh, misquote, but I, I believe it was north of 50 hours he had in just that lanyard. Um, and that to me is nuts. I don't yeah, doubt it. That thing is, that thing is slick. So I don't doubt that at all. It's yeah. pretty. But I wouldn't want to be the one. Making it. Yeah. 50 hours. That's intense. <laughs> Super intense. I can't stop coughing, boys. <clears throat> oh, Lord. Mm-mm-mm. Let's hey, say you, we got we got twelve on the show. You can't be talking about that endo on here. Do it again. You got me again. Out of my jurisdiction. Mm. Now you put you put up there about you know aftermarket options, and I, while we're talking about boss, I wanted to talk about this just because of what I noticed. So when I shot steel, I shot nothing but. Um, a pattern master code black goose and everything. And I just was really impressed with that choke. Always have been. I have it in three different guns. When I started shooting boss, I put the factory full in and I noticed a better pattern from factory chokes than I did from aftermarket chokes when using that ammunition, just from my personal experience. And I know that I would have never done that. Boss has a pretty active Facebook group. Um, and I used to look at that quite a bit when deciding you know, what loads I wanted to grab or whatever before I figured out what worked best for me and just kind of looking off of other people's experiences, the choke topic got brought up quite a bit. And a lot of people had had said that, that the factory chokes do better with the ammunition than some aftermarket stuff. So I, I swapped over to factory in that Benelli and I've been very, very, very impressed with the performance. Yeah, I so I added in the aftermarket uh, note in there only because like, um, there's in my research, I haven't found a lot of, uh, choke options in 16 or 28. Uh, the 20 is, is seems like it's starting to, uh, generate a little bit more push in that arena. Um, but I haven't, I personally haven't seen any, I kind of wanted to note that like, if you are one of those people that prefer to have an aftermarket choke you know, maybe that might be a deciding factor. And, um, you know, if you're choosing to go to a, you know, a different sub gauge, I, I personally, if I'm like you, I've went back to factory chokes. They're just, it works a little bit better for me. Well, you know, the 28 gauge is a predominantly a pheasant and quail gun. 
Uh, I would say that there's more people probably that hunt with a 28 gauge in the Dakotas chasing wild pheasant um, than any other gauge. I, I, that's that's the whole reason that, that I I even paid much attention to it as a sporting gun uh, was was through upland hunting, and <clears throat> I just really honestly want to take on the challenge of trying it for waterfowl. I don't think that you have a handicap, and you know, like we've said it a couple of times in a roundabout way, but. I really don't think you have a handicap going to a 20 gauge. And that's like one thing that I really wanted to make clear from my standpoint in this episode is my experience over the last three years with it. I don't feel like I'm <clears throat> at any, <clears throat> excuse me, any sort of disadvantage to anyone else in that blind who's shooting a 12 gauge with me holding a 20 period. Number one, I can shoot the lights out of that thing, but past that, I don't feel like there's anything that my guy to my left or my right who's using a 12 has an advantage over me with. When I go to that 28 gauge, I definitely will have that. You're not going to have the same pellet count. You're not going to have the same charge. I definitely feel that I will be handicapped to a degree when comparing that, that firearm and that ammunition to that of a 12 gauge. Well, I mean, I'll say from like my standpoint, I don't feel like I handicapped myself at all either. And that, uh, you know, I was, I had been shooting at 12 all morning and then you throw me that 20 when I start to bolo and it didn't, it didn't, I mean, honestly, it was seamless to me. Um, it didn't, it didn't change anything. So, um, and that was really the, the mm -hmm. deciding factor in, in me is like, I know like a couple people I've had conversations with, they're like, well, I just, I don't know if I necessarily have the time to get acquainted uh, with, you know, you know, sub gauge prior to the season, which I completely agree with, you know, but I, I really don't think that that transition is necessarily as big as you think it is from 12 to 20. Now, you know, some other gauges may be a little bit different. No, I agree. Especially if you're working birds and, you know, they're finishing where you want them to finish. You know, you, you shouldn't really even notice the difference between the 12 and the 20. Um, they should kill, kill the same at that point. Um, like I said, the 28 gauge, I, I don't know much of other than, you know, the, the quail hunt. Um, but I, I could definitely see where things would start changing a little bit. Yeah. With the 16 and 28s. Well, so Dylan, like one thing, you know, I want to touch on a little bit too, that, Andy kind of roundabout brought up is the getting acquainted part. I, you know, Dylan, Dylan is, uh, has been on some specialty teams with, uh, with law enforcement within that. And then as you all know, uh, Andy and I were both in the military and, you know, the, the opportunity to handle a variety of different weapon systems. I think, I think it comes down to your mechanic, like your mechanics, right? So like Dylan, would you feel that you need an acquaintance period necessarily? with a firearm once you know that you know obviously you shoulder it and you ensure that you know you have the correct line of sight from that point do you feel like you know mechanics and and all of that kind of take over in there that i guess acquaintance period is kind of relevant at that point or do you really do you feel like you need you need time with a with a new shotgun before you you pick it up and run i mean i, I can see both sides um i'm gonna say no not really just for the fact man if you know, mechanical and everything's right, you should be able to pick it up and it go bang. Um, obviously, you know, the more you work with it, the the more comfortable you are, which might cause you to be a better shot. I mean, if you pick a gun up you've never touched, you know, you're in your head, then 
you know, man, I've never shot this gun. And next thing you know, you're, you're whiffing everything. But as far as mechanic, mechanical goes, I think, man, pull the thing out of the box and, and rock. Um, yeah. What do you see as, what do you see as a potential, do you see the, the resurgence of sub gauges bringing in more youth and women to waterfowl? Or do you see this as just like, do you, do you think it doesn't really have much of an impact? Cause me personally, I feel like the more options, the more shell options, the more firearm options are available, the more sub gauges are talked about and put out there. I feel like it could influence younger folks uh, and more women to participate in waterfowl hunting. That's just my take on it. Like, what do y'all think about that? Yeah, I could see that, but I could also see kind of broadening, you know, your, your strict upland bird hunters, like, you know, the guys that are dedicated to the 28 or the 16, you know, might start trying to say, Hey, let's, you know, jump into some waterfowl hunting with, with these guns. Um, but I definitely see where, where it could bring in some more females and, and the younger generation. I think that, uh, I, I think it's going to, I don't want to say it's going to bring more kids in. I, I think that may be uh, a little bit presumptive, but I will say, I think that it's going to allow more kids to start shooting earlier. Yeah. So we, in return, what we might see is we might see more younger, responsible hunters, more I, I think, ethical. Yeah, as I say, like a, like a more efficient too. I mean, if if you're starting off with sixteen twenty eight gauge, you know it's different than pulling up a twenty gauge and, and blasting. I mean, you gotta you got you gotta be a little more on your mark with with those sub gauge. Yeah, I I mean I I would agree with that. <clears throat> I think. I think that ultimately, though, too, it opens up folks with disabilities that, you know, may struggle to shoulder carry all of that with a 12 gauge that it could maybe open up opportunities for folks that previously haven't been able to uh, effectively get it back out there and waterfowl hunt the opportunity uh, when you start talking about <clears throat> something as light as a 28 gauge, a 28 gauge and a 410 are really not that far off. You know, and then a 20 gauge is just a hair bigger. And then you got a 16 and then you're 12, you know. And I just think that <clears throat> giving somebody a lighter option, those that have shoulder problems or maybe, uh, you know, have have whatever whatever other medical issues that have prevented them in the past from, from being able to hunt, um, maybe open up some opportunities for them. It's, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I hadn't even thought about it, but I was guiding and, uh, and it was a party of four and – they told us that one of the guys had a handicap and said, you know, if, as long as there's a blind, you know, where it didn't have to get in the water, he's fine. Um, but they didn't mention that he was like completely handicapped. He couldn't, he couldn't get in the blind period. Like it was wheelchair bound. Um, so we ended up having to, to ratchet strap his wheelchair beside the blind to a pine tree. Um, but he, he was shooting a 410 and, that that was kind of what he said. You know, he had never he grew up hunting, and when he became paralyzed, he had to uh, he couldn't shoot the the twelves and even the twenties. Um, and he hadn't really been anywhere that he could kill ducks with the four ten. And all he wanted was a wood duck and a a shoveler. And uh, man, they were the first two ducks in, and <laughs> he smoked those things. And it, it was probably one of my most memorable hunts, just for the fact of what it was. I mean, there was a lot that went into it. Um, 
we had to like so we had to figure out how to how to get him there um since that part was left out prior to the hunt but uh i, I agree on that you know i think the the sub shotguns definitely you know opens more doors for the for the handicap crowd yeah i so i just looked it up uh the difference and i just specifically went and looked at the m2 it's a one pound difference between a 12 and a 20 it that feels way more than that though yeah and that's what i was about to say like uh, you take somebody who has you know or even and this might might even be another point that it could you know later on down the road affect it might allow more elderly hunters to stay in the game a little bit longer true um just on yeah, fatigue like, level. like me <laughs> <laughs> you do be getting up there <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, then you just With turn that. like 43 is that like <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, not definitely not. My hairline may, maybe turned forty three, but if we're talking about hairline, I, I'm in trouble. <laughs> oh man, <clears throat> no, I and you know, I guess this uh, this episode, you know, obviously we we pretty much ran through the whole topic on sub gauges already, but something that Dylan said just kind of sparked something in me. I got to ask you, Andy, what? What is your most memorable experience waterfowl hunting? Oh, hands down, when we were in Michigan. Hands down. Any specific moment or any specific one of our hunts that were there? So the day, um, well, first of all, you know, uh, the day we made the transition from Saginaw to um, uh, Erie. Yeah. That was, that was the, that was the day for me, man, because, uh, I was like extremely frustrated. Um, it was, well, I guess to backtrack, you know, we set the first day, uh, we set in layouts for almost nine hours and watched GoldenEye skirt us all day long. Only, I mean, really only because we didn't have, you know, we weren't properly equipped to be, uh, trying to stab off GoldenEye. And no. it, like, it, it was frustrating all day. You know, I think I fired three times, bellowed all three of them. Um, not necessarily sure they were within range, uh, but we were super pumped up because the first day we got there, uh, barely had enough light and they, they knocked off two stud redheads. So we thought the next day was going to be, you know, a straight banger. Um, and we watched, you know, we watched gold enough for nine hours. Um, but making that transition to Erie, um, I felt like it was the, one of the first times that also like me and you hunting together that we like really synced and we understood where and what and how each of us were going to kind of shoot, move and communicate and set yeah. things up. Um, honestly, man, just the whole day. And then, you know, once we got set up, you know, I think it was like 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, and, you know, we, we had a nice raft probably, you know, seven, 800 yards out in front of us. And they just, they flew all day long to us. Um, and we got to sit out, sit out there and uh, try and pick out some, some drakes. And I mean, it was, it was, it definitely is probably my, one of my most memorable hunts from a standpoint of the, the sportsmanship of it, the camaraderie of it. I mean, everybody was just, you know, on cloud nine, you know, working together. We didn't, have a lot of frustrations even though we were all kind of in the dumps because we you know we drove 
you know, 16 hours to make this happen. And, um, but it definitely was, that's probably one of my tops, I would say. That the ice chunks in Saginaw Bay yeah. and all that, man, it was a nightmare. I lost that video. I'm, I'm kind of sad about it. Like, cause there's a lot of people that don't believe that video when you tell them like what we were doing, they're like, there's no way you guys were bumping six, eight inches of ice. I'm like, yeah, we would slide well, the boat the video down. of us going. No, I've got the video of us going out through that. I've, oh, you do? Yeah. Nice. Um, it's it's nuts how much ice we were breaking with, with a skiff. Definitely not the – I mean, by all intents and purposes, not the boat that you want to be doing that. The ben, I'm glad we had the skiff, though, because the skiff, you know, being a flat bottom, it would just go right up over the ice. And then we were going so slow that, you know, we would get – the bow of the boat good and on it and it would collapse and then up and collapse and up and collapse. And we just <clears throat> pushed our way right on out and, and didn't have really any issues of getting hung up on anything. Um, you know, it, it could have been, if we would have gone a little faster, I mean, we could have definitely damaged the hole, but um, <clears throat> one of, I guess if we're talking about most memorable experiences hunting uh, for me, it, and it honestly didn't click until probably a year or two after the experience that that became one of the most memorable. Um, I, I remember we were hunting this piece of property in, in Washington. It was uh, me and Eric Bakken up there hunting uh, this beautiful Taj Mahal of a blind. This blind had a huge shooting area and behind the shooting area, there was like a, almost like a living room. There's a table, there's a refrigerator, there's a couch back there. It was nuts. And, um, it was, it was really brushed in. It was all sheet water all the way around you. You had a pretty decent walk, um, through, through that to get to the blind, but it, uh, it, the, the setup of it was just gorgeous and <clears throat> shot this pintail and this pintail kind of fell back behind the blind where Sarge is Eric's dog as Sarge couldn't see the bird and Eric just sent him out, you know, Sarge. And next thing you know, he automatically knew, like, I don't, he never saw that bird. It was impossible for him to have seen that bird. And next thing you know, here comes Sarge with his pintail and, you know, pintail still head up, you know, Sarge had to catch it out the weeds and he comes back in and he like kind of runs past everybody and he goes back to the back room. And I'm just like in admiration of this pintail and Sarge is like prancing around the blind with it, you know, just kind of you know, tail wagging, head up, just doing his thing, prancing around this blind. And I remember just like taking that pintail and looking at that pintail and that experience of Sarge bringing it back through. That was, that was one of the coolest retrieves at that point that I had seen uh, from a dog and just the intuitiveness and the, and the teamwork that Eric and Sarge had built together. And I remember just looking down and seeing all those paw prints in the blind. Fast forward, a little bit of time goes by and Sarge was pretty much like on his deathbed and, you know, they, they didn't know what had happened. They were, they'd gone through several different vets and nobody seemed to be able to figure out what could have caused him to be in this condition. And they were really concerned he was going to die. And, you know, I think, you know, thought back through all the awesome hunts that, that we had had. And, and I recalled that one. And, and that's kind of what spawned that song that, uh, that Daniel Jeffers wrote and uh, produced. So if you get an opportunity uh, Paul Prince in the blind it's on iTunes Spotify all that fun stuff um, that song is written about that experience with, with Sarge uh, what wound up happening was he ingested salmon 
I guess, raw salmon. And if, if dogs ingest that up there in the Pacific Northwest, it has some sort of bacteria that, that can kill them. Um, so anyway, they figured it out and uh, he did survive. But in that moment, that's probably, you know, and it, it's weird that it clicked as one of my most memorable moments when it did. But I'd have to say that's probably a, a top five for me. I didn't even know that. And I honestly, I just listened to uh, that song the other day. I was in a little little funk and I was like, man, let me let me pop this joint on. <laughs> yeah, shout I think that would be tone with a lot of people. Yeah, shout out to uh Daddy Jeffers. Yeah, if he's listening. Yeah. <laughs> he's TikToking right now. Probably. He's probably on TikTok live, jamming out, collecting roses and coins. Yeah, getting some roses. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, he's probably alive right now. <laughs> oh man, we were trolling him pretty good the other day. <laughs> oh man, um, I think that about wraps it up, fellas. You guys got anything else for the week, man? Uh, Dylan, did, like, I want to, I want to pick you. I want to make, I want to put you on the spot a little bit. You got, you got one more of, uh, of your top maybe personal experiences within within waterfowl hunting that you know make you not was a without being a guided adventure, you know, something that, you know, really sticks out to you on your personal walk with, uh, with waterfowl. Man, the last, I don't even know, 10, 10, 11 years has mostly been guided. I hadn't had a chance to do much, you know, personal hunts for myself. Um, went to Canada, you know, with, with a bunch of, bunch of friends in like 20, 17 or so 2016 um for me you know growing up on north mountain coast dry field hunting was not anything i did unless it was a goose so really man that first morning that we hunted that that we hunted canada and uh and the mallards were trying to land on top of the the layout blinds you know that the sunrise you know up there it was the whole just the whole experience there honestly is probably you know one of my tops and it's not you know for a specific reason of you know something that happened on the hunt itself but it's more the experience itself um right completely, completely different from what i was used to so man it was just cool um but you know kind of you know the, the dog thing man my you know y'all know you know my lost my dog jacks i guess two seasons ago um but his last hunt was a uh was a youth day hunt and man it's funny how it works you know guiding everybody always comes down to all oh, they want to shoot a pintail. You know, I'm, I'm here to shoot a pintail. Basically, if you can't put me on a pintail, you ain't shit. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's funny because it's, it's always those guys that never shoot a pintail. And then it's the crowd that comes down and, you know, they say, man, I'm just here to, to have a good time. I'm here to shoot some ducks. And that's all we can get. In, all we can get to, to decoy is pintails. I mean, it gets to the point where you're watching pintails just landing to decoys because you've already killed them. But, uh, man, I had some, some kids in there. And uh, his dad was my barber at the time, or, and uh, so he asked about a hunt, and I was able to hook him up. It was him and his two boys, and uh, pintails were doing it nasty that day. I mean, just perfect. And his youngest son pulled up and shot a pintail. You, you know that heart shot where they they're still fluttering, they're flying off, but they're still fluttering. Um, yeah, man, he was doing that about twenty yards above the water in the impoundment, and. Uh, sent Jax out there because I knew it was going to fall. You know, it was one of those, you know, he's going to fall. So I went ahead and sent him so he could be 
around it. And, uh, man, that thing flew from the blind to the back of the impoundment was about a hundred yards. Then there's a canal from the impoundment to a dike. And then another canal off the other side of the dike into a bean field. And, uh, man, that duck flew out in a bean field and fell out. And I was like, man, there's no way. Like, that's, that's a, that's a haul. Like it was close to, you know, 200, 300 yards. Um, but Jax was swimming underneath the duck, you know, like looking right up at him the whole time he was flying. And he yeah. went through the canal. You know, this was this was close to the end. He'd been chasing cripples. It's a Utah. He's been chasing cripples all day. He's wore out. And uh, I see him go up on the dike, and then after that, I can't see anything past that. So I went and got in my truck and ran all the way you know, to the back of the field and had to come back up, and I could see him, just, you know, running across the field, and he had that pintail in his mouth. You know, same thing you were talking about. I had the head was still up, you know. And, uh, man, I pulled up there. And he he looked at me and I looked at him and he was like, Man, just put me in the truck. Like <laughs> I got your Man, I'm, I'm not swimming back to that blind. So I threw him in the truck and uh went back to the to the blind. And that ended up being his last retrieve. Um that was the last bird we needed that day. And that was his last duck. And to, to me, the man, that was one of the top retrieves I've seen just for the fact, you know, man, he he was not a not a hunt test dog. He was backyard trained, you know, by me. It it was not a you know, it, it wasn't a dog, a $10,000 dog, and but that dog had it. Um, but it was just cool, you know, watching him pretty much just swim underneath the bird the whole time, just you know, waiting for him to fall. And so, uh, so that's, that's a very memorable one for me. Man, I appreciate that. I, uh, that's an incredible story, dude. No doubt about it. Um, Andy, what are we, what are we getting into next week? Uh, so next week, uh, we're going to go kind of, off the hip a little bit um and uh we're gonna bring on a uh a fellow who's uh grown near and dear to my heart you know me and him have started having some some good conversations and fellowship um but we're gonna bring on uh one of our gunners justin powers and we're gonna talk about um mental health in the outdoors and and you know how it how it allows us to to release some stress and some tension um especially you know within the the uh first responder second responder, um, <laughs> military world, you know, um, and then just talk about some of the correlations and why we enjoy it. Um, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And I think that, um, you know, as we ad adapt as a society as you know, in, in general and everything that, uh, the more conversations we can have on mental health and how, you know, we can all benefit from it, learn from it, um, the, the better it will be. Yes, I it's a huge thing right now, man. Mental mental health is huge, especially in you know our fields that we come from. But you know, in general, it's huge. So that that should be a good a good episode. Yeah, he's a active duty crayon eater, also. So <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that'll be a good one. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I appreciate it, fellas. It's been awesome. Good episode. Absolutely. Yes, sir. So uh, we'll catch you guys on the next episode next week for uh, season two, episode three. We appreciate you being with us.